William Cooper was an 18th century English poet and hymn writer. And from an early age, Cooper had experienced great grief and trials in his life. At the age of six, Cooper's mother passed away while giving birth to his brother John. And John and William were only two of seven kids that would live past infancy. After the death of his mother, his father became very cold and distant, and William was sent to boarding school. And throughout his life, Cooper struggled with these episodes of deep, debilitating depression. He even struggled with suicide. And after a suicide attempt that failed, he was admitted to a mental asylum. And it was there during his hospitalization that he had heard the gospel and responded to the grace of Jesus and came to faith in Christ. However, even after leaving the hospital, his struggle with depression and suicide didn't end. Cooper would end up attempting to take his life two more times and his struggle with depression would be with him for the rest of his time here on earth. He did, however, begin, begin attending the church of John Newton, the famous slave trader turned preacher and author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. And the two of them became very close friends. Newton would spend a lot of time with Cooper trying to encourage and care for him. And knowing how good of a poet he was, Newton was actually the one who encouraged him to start writing hymns. And among the many hymns Cooper wrote, one was titled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I want to take a minute and read the lyrics of this hymn, and I want you to think about the tension that we see in this man who deeply believes and knows that God is good and sovereign, while at the same time wrestling with deep sorrow and depression. The hymn says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain." As you hear and reflect on those lyrics, you can just feel this tension between someone who deeply believes but is torn by the experience of his life. And in this hymn, Cooper presents, with, presents us with this paradox. And it's that there's a good and sovereign God while at the same time we experience deep, dark trials in this life. And the Christian life and faith is one that is filled with paradox. Warren Wiersbe says this, a paradox is a statement that attracts because it seems to be contradictory. This arouses curiosity and we're puzzled. But as we meditate on the statement, we go deeper into some important facet of life and we learn something new. Paradoxes are marvelous instructors. 
So Jesus said things like, in order to live, you must first die. In order to save your life, you must lose it. If you want to be first, then you have to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be a servant. All these things that seem to contradict themselves, but on, on, upon further examination, they reveal to us deep and powerful truths. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. In the passage of scripture I want to look at this morning, Peter is going to present to us another paradox. And this one is difficult because it is oftentimes forced upon us in such a way that we have to wrestle on a personal and intimate level with it. And the paradox we're going to see is this. Although we suffer great grief, we have great joy. Although we suffer great grief, we have great joy. And in this letter that Peter's writing, he knows he's writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing trials and suffering. And in the midst of those sufferings, Peter wants his readers to know that they can simultaneously have grief and joy. But how is that possible? Don't those two things seem to contradict themselves? Grief and joy, aren't they incompatible together? Let's read our passage together. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 9 this morning, but it's important that we actually start reading starting in verse 3. So 1 Peter 1, starting in 3, says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Back in January, Pastor Keith preached for us on this living hope that each one of us who have experienced this new birth in Christ have. And understanding this living hope is crucial if we're really going to understand what Peter tells us in verses 6 through 9. Look at right in the beginning of verse 6. Peter uses this phrase, in all of this meaning everything he just described for us, this supernatural, miraculous rebirth into a living hope. A key to understanding this paradox of joy amongst grief begins by understanding the living hope that each of us who are in Christ have that transcends every situation and circumstance we'll face. And there's three key truths I want us to see this morning in verses six through nine. And the first truth is this. By faith, we know 
the trials of this life have meaning and purpose. Let's just start by looking at how Peter defines these trials for us. Look at what it says in verse six again. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So the first thing we notice is that they're happening now and for a little while. And we need to be clear about what Peter's saying here. When he says now, he means today. And when he says a little while, he means the rest of our time on this earth. And that's the expectation Peter's setting for his readers. He's not saying you just need to make it through a few more days or a few more weeks or a few more months or even a few more years and everything will just work itself out. But if he means our whole lives, then why does he say a little while? Well, Peter wants us to remember that in comparison to eternity, the life we have on this earth is just a little while. James says it like this, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So here, Peter is calling us to view the timeline of this life in light of the timeline of eternity. And that perspective is crucial for what he's about to say in the next few verses. The next way Peter describes these trials is by saying, you may have had. Other translations use this phrase, if necessary. Which brings up this question, who gets to decide which trials are necessary in our lives? Well, Peter answers that question multiple times in this letter. In, verse, or in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Then in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So Peter makes it clear that our suffering is a part of God's good and sovereign will. So we can have confidence that whenever and whatever trials are brought, to our li- brought into our life, we're brought there by the will of God. And that's gonna be important for what we're gonna say in a minute. But one last thing I want us to see about these trials is that they cause us to suffer grief. In this passage, Peter is in no way trying to downplay the hardships and the struggles that we face in this life. In fact, the very word that Peter uses here for, for grief is the same word that Matthew uses in verse 26 when he's describing what Jesus is going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, Jesus is described as grieved in distress. Peter fully understands just how difficult the trials of this life are. And nothing he says here takes away from that. So these trials are described, described as part of our life here on earth, as God-ordained, and as leading us to serious grief. So how exactly do these kind of trials have meaning and purpose in this life? Well, Peter immediately answers that question when he says this. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Think about this picture that Peter gives us here. It's very powerful. Think about how a goldsmith 
refines his gold. It's a process that requires precision and it's methodical. It requires an appropriate amount of heat and time in the fire. And the gold needs to be handled very carefully if it's gonna become free of all impurities. Peter wants us to see that our lives and our faith are in the hands of God and he is the perfect goldsmith. He knows exactly what our faith needs to be purified. He knows how long and how hot the fire needs to be. And for as valuable as gold is, and it's incredibly valuable, your faith is worth more. And for as imperishable as gold is, and it's one of the least perishable things in this life, it won't last compared to your faith. What great purpose the trials in our life have when they are refining our faith. But you know, the value of these trials isn't just for our faith in our lives right now. Peter goes on to say that our great faith refined will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. You know, I think Peter's being very clear with what he's saying here. He's saying that you, the one who is having their faith refined, you will experience praise, glory, and honor because of your faith. And at first you might hear that and think, that sounds a little strange. Maybe you might even be a little uncomfortable with that. Like, isn't Jesus the only one that receives praise and glory and honor? How does that work? I think John Piper sums it up perfectly when he says this. When Jesus appears in glory, two things are gonna happen. His glory will be magnificently reflected in the mirror of our faith. He will be the trusted one, the hope for one, and the rejoiced in one. So his glory will shine in our faith and hope and joy. And the more pure and refined the gold of our faith, the more clearly his beauty and worth will be reflected. But since God exalts all that exalts him, he will give praise and glory and honor, honor and glory to our faith. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So because our faith will mirror and reflect the magnificent, beautiful glory of Christ, we will receive praise, glory, and honor. That should fill us with joy. For the follower of Jesus, the trials that we face in this life have significant meaning and purpose now but also in the life to come. And that's one of the key things that separates the Christian hope from the rest of the world. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist and neurologist who specialized in treating suicidal patients. At the age of 37, Frankl was forced into a concentration camp. And he would spend the next three years of his life in four different camps. And over that period of time, he would lose his father, his mother, his brother, and his wife. However, during his time in the camps, Frankel never stopped trying to help people. He organized a suicide prevention group to try to help new prisoners as they arrived. And throughout his time working with people in the camps, he became fascinated with how people were responding to the unbelievable suffering that they were facing. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he documented both his experience 
in the responses that he witnessed from people who were confronted with horrific suffering. And one way that he observed people respond was to become cruel and brutal to the fellow inmates and prisoners. They were willing to do anything in order to just survive, including inflicting pain and suffering on others. A second way he observed people respond was to just completely give up hope. He said that this would happen rather quickly. One day a person would just refuse to get out of bed, refuse to shower, refuse to work, and it didn't matter how much they were threatened or beaten, they had simply lost the will to continue to live. But a third response, and this was from a smaller group, Frankel included, was those who tried to find a meaning and purpose in their suffering. And Frankel knew that this meaning had to come from something that was outside of the circumstances they were facing. And he was convinced that if they could find meaning outside of the circumstances, that they could face any amount of suffering. Frankel put it like this, once an individual's search for meaning is successful, it not only renders him happy, but also gives him the capability to cope with suffering. Frankel would often cite Nietzsche's famous saying, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Frankel miraculously survived his time in the camps, and after he was released, he finished working on what he called his logotherapy. And this approach to psychotherapy summarized Frankel's belief that meaning and purpose could get people through any of life's difficult trials and challenges. However, Frankel believed that the meaning of life would actually change from person to person and even change daily and hourly. So people shouldn't just look for some big overall meaning to life, but rather find meaning in relationships and the tasks of everyday life. You know, there's no doubt that Viktor Frankl made some very profound observations about humanity and suffering when he came face to face with some of the worst conditions any human has ever faced. But as you think about the conclusions that he came to, they just fall short of what we as humans are desperately longing for. Ultimately, the places that he encouraged people to find meaning and purpose, there's no real substance to them. They won't last. And that's what separates us who follow Jesus from the rest of the world. Because we have been reborn into a new living hope, we have purpose and meaning that is everlasting. And it gives our trials in this life meaning, not just now, but in the life to come. And therefore, we can rejoice. The second truth I want us to see this morning is that by faith, we love Jesus in every trial of this life. Look again at verse eight. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. I want us to remember who's writing this letter. Think about Peter's life. This man saw Jesus. And not only did he see Jesus, he witnessed things like Jesus walking on water. He was on the mountaintop when Jesus was transfigured and shining in all of his glory. And he actually saw Jesus ascend into heaven after his resurrection. 
Jesus or Peter saw so many amazing things that we would do anything to get to see. But for everything that Peter witnessed, he knew it wasn't his physical association that united him with Christ. Peter knew that he received the supernatural, miraculous gift of God. And because he was reborn into a living hope, that's why he could love Jesus. And he knew his readers had experienced the same thing. Also think about the trials that Peter faced. When Peter was confronted about his association with Jesus during Jesus' crucifixion, and he did what he never thought he would do, denied Jesus three times. But then after Jesus is resurrected, we see this in John chapter 21, what does Jesus ask Peter when he's restoring him? He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And to each question, Peter responds, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus proceeds to tell Peter about the type of death that he would die for the glory of God. And he tells Peter, follow me. Jesus connects loving him with suffering and sacrifice. Peter knows that he's writing to a people that haven't had the same physical experience that he has had with Jesus. But he wants them to remember that they both have something so much greater than that. They've both been reborn into a living hope and they can love Jesus. What do you need to rejoice although you suffer? Love Jesus knowing that he first loved you and right now he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. In John chapter 20, just one verse before this restoration of Peter, when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, the disciple Thomas wasn't there to get to see it. And when he gets back, Jesus is no longer there. And all the other disciples try to tell Thomas what happened, but he doesn't buy it. He actually says, unless I see, I will not believe. Well, a week later, Jesus does show up, show up again, and Thomas is able to see, and he does believe. But then Jesus says this, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Church, we can rejoice because although we have not seen, we have been given the supernatural gift to love Jesus. And though we, have not, we do not see him now, he has allowed us to believe. And in any and every trial of this life, that's enough. The third and final truth I want us to see this morning is this. By faith, today, you are receiving the mercy and grace of Jesus. You want to hear another paradox? You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Peter says this, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this verse, Peter is intentionally using this word receiving in the present tense because he wants us to know that every single mercy and grace of Jesus that we need for the trials of this life are given to us today. When we first come to a saving faith in Jesus, 
We receive his mercy and grace in every single past, present, and future sin that we have or will commit is forgiven. That's called justification. And for all those who have been justified, one day we will be completely free of the presence of sin when we're with Jesus. That's called glorification. But right now we live in between those two and we're experiencing our sanctification. And each day we receive mercy and we receive grace and that's what gives us freedom from the power of sin. And because of that, because of that we have inexpressible and glorious joy. The reason our joy is inexpressible and glorious is because it's found in the inexpressible glory of Jesus. How do you express the full glory of Jesus? We can't, but it produces in us a joy that goes beyond our comprehension. How can we have true joy even though we experience grief? No, the trials you face now have meaning and purpose. Know that by the supernatural gift of God, you can love him in every situation of this life. And know that you have every single mercy and grace of Jesus that you need. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor Keith and I had the privilege to travel to a part of this world where there's much outward sacrifice required for those who want to follow Jesus. And we had the honor to get to teach and train church leaders in the work of the gospel. And as we did, I was incredibly humbled by the amount of pure joy I witnessed in their life. Many of these believers had been disowned by family members, persecuted by their neighbors, and even spent time in prison. But in the midst of all those things, they truly had a supernatural joy that went beyond any circumstance that they faced. I don't know why God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to put you through the specific faith-refining trials in this life that he has. But I am persuaded that he has given you everything you need to have a supernatural joy in the midst of them. This paradox of joy amongst grief points us to the greatest paradox in all of Christianity, and it's the paradox of the cross. From death came life. From penalty came pardon. From judgment came justification. The, writers of, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verses two and three. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This morning, we're gonna celebrate communion. We're gonna celebrate the paradox of the cross, which shows us the greatest joy amongst grief. And from a worldly perspective, the cross just doesn't make sense. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The living hope that everything we've talked about this morning is based on is only possible through the cross. Did you notice that 
all three of the points we talked about this morning began by, began with, by faith. Having joy amongst grief, it doesn't come from what we do or our own effort or abilities, but it comes from what Jesus did. Having faith. Church, though we have not seen, he has given us a picture of his body that was broken for us. And though we don't see him now, he has given us a picture of his blood that he willingly poured out for us. Taste and see that he is good. And this points us forward to the day where he will come in all of his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the time in your word this morning. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the miraculous rebirth into a living hope that each of us who have put our faith in Christ have. And we pray that it is that rebirth that in that living hope that we would rely on for the trials of this life. God, we know the trials in this life are difficult. We don't under, always understand why you and your infinite wisdom has, has chosen to put us through the specific trials that you have. But we know that you are good. We know that they have a purpose. We know that you love us more than we can possibly imagine. Therefore, we can love you. And we know that there's a day coming where we will see you in all of your glory and we will rejoice. God, as we come to the communion table this morning, help us to remember the cross and help us to see you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.